So we're reading from uh, John's Gospel, chapter 15, and we're going to be reading through uh, verse 1 through verse 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So this morning we're looking at John chapter 15. From chapter 13, that marks the day before Jesus' arrest. And in those subsequent passages, we get lots and lots of teaching from Jesus. And the passage we're honing in on is about many things, one of them being growth in Christ. It claims that any growth as a Christian, in fact, all growth is only possible because of union with Christ. Growth is the unavoidable result of being connected to Christ. No branch can bear fruit by itself, it says, It must remain in me, remain in the vine. No one can bear fruit unless they remain in me. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been thinking about union with Christ. We was in Ephesians 1 two weeks ago, then Romans 8, and now John 15. Uh, If you're in the Crosslands group, they've been looking at it at some depth as well. And in preparation for this morning, I've been um, looking at it quite a lot as well. And... uh, One thing I've learned, if you can call it a learning, is that it's uh, very difficult to understand. Um, It's difficult to comprehend. But then so many things about God are difficult in that way. I cannot uh, cannot fully comprehend his eternal nature. I, I can understand the living forever part, just means never dying, continuing forever. But having always been here in eternity past... I can't quite get that together in my mind. He's existed forever, was never born. It's hard for me to grasp. I can understand the roles of the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I don't quite understand how they are three people in one. The Godhead, the same person, constantly serving each other and how that's all possible. That is beyond me. There's plenty about God that is mystical And it's no surprise when you think about it, how could we ever expect to fully understand an eternal, awesome, omnipresent God? 
Why has uh, union with Christ been so difficult for me to grasp? I think, um, well, Peter's explanation of it is this, partaking in the divine nature. Just think about that for a second. Partaking in the divine nature. If you become a Christian, somehow you are linked in your heart to God, the supernatural God, united to him. We're in this intimate relationship with him, unlike anything we know on earth, beyond friendship, beyond marriage, beyond family. His nature influences ours. In Samuel 2, the Ark of the Covenant, which is a symbol of God's presence, was touched seemingly by accident and the bloke died. And King David was afraid himself. He said, how can the Ark of the Lord ever come to me? Yet this same God is ever-present in our hearts the day we become Christians, because we are in Jesus. It's a truth, but not a simple one. It's mind-blowing, hard to grasp. Now, before we get into the passage, I'd like to address a question that cropped up in my own mind. How can we, in good conscience, believe in a God whilst admitting that we can't fully understand him? Um, throughout my school life, I've loved science. Still now, planet Earth, dynasties, anything to do with space, fascinating. I'm a fan. One thing I've noticed is that many scientists conclude, um, because in so many ways God is outside the measure of science, outside what can be understood scientifically, they conclude that he cannot exist. And I think there's a problem with that logic. Science can tell you what frequencies hit your ears, the rate of vibration and what part of our brain processes it and so on. But it can't tell you if a piece of music is good. That's beyond its remit, but that doesn't mean we think, okay, there's no such thing as good music. It can tell you the molecular structure of a bar of chocolate, but not that it tastes good. But we don't think, oh, it can't, something can't taste good. If you are a Christian, the all-powerful God is united with you. There's something supernatural going on, something mystical. My brain struggles to understand how it works exactly, how it's even possible. And I just have to accept that limitation. Jesus says, I am the true vine. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This claim comes from... Uh, says that union with Christ has no earthly contender, no replacement, nothing that compares. Union with him is what our souls are made for and, and nothing can complete your joy apart from that. Jesus is the true vine without competition. He says, I am the true vine. The biblical writers must have been aware uh, when they were explaining this union with Christ business that it is difficult which is perhaps why they use so many metaphors for us. Peter uses living stones forming part of a house. Paul uses a human body connected to the head. And Jesus here uses a vine and branches. So our first heading then is, what is real growth and real fruit? Let's uh, continue with this metaphor of a vine and get a couple of gardening basics out of the way. I think we all know that if you snap a branch off something, it withers and dies. 
it can't produce any fruit. And we see in verse 4, in verse 6, no branch can bear fruit by itself. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Jesus is saying that outside of him, there can be no growth and no fruit. Also note that the fruit on the branch doesn't give anything to the vine. It doesn't add to it. Fruit is merely a result of being attached to it. Fruit shows that the branch is linked to the vine properly, organically, on the inside. The life of the vine goes out into the branch and the consequence of that is that it bears fruit. The branch can't grow by itself, of its own will, of its own efforts. I think there's certainly a place for effort, but I think we all know from countless diets that start on Monday or New Year's resolutions in years gone by that um, sometimes our own efforts fail. And I have had that experience in my Christian life as well. You, you, you try to change something and you fail. It's um, so easy to forget that we need to be in him and continue to strive on our own efforts and earn our own merits, you could say. A helpful phrase I've come across is uh, what this might look like, is mechanical growth. When you force something together, a bolt, a hinge in a door, using that drill, you bend something into compliance, something that doesn't want to go, um, it's only mechanical compliance, it's not organic. It can't hold forever. Eventually, it will break. Um, my uh, top box for my motorbike, the key has been getting stuck recently and I've just been forcing it to turn. And the inevitable happened, it snapped off. Um, you can bend it, bend the metal, but eventually it either breaks the thing it's attached to or breaks itself and returns to its original shape. Real growth only happens because the branch is linked to the vine, drawing on its nutrients, on its life, on its goodness. So let me give some real life examples. I cannot access adult content on my mobile phone. There's a code in there, it's been there for years, only my brother knows it. In many ways that is a good thing. It prevents me looking at stuff when temptation is at my door. But in and of itself, that is just mechanical compliance. What if I got a new phone or discovered a code? What happens then? Without a heart change, without real fruit of self-control, without the vine giving me organic growth on that issue, without real union with Christ, it's not fruit. It's not real growth. It's just mechanical compliance. You've got the two types of people in Mark giving money. Some publicly give large amounts of their considerable wealth, while a poor woman gave two coins. Could we say one is given out of mechanical compliance, because it's what they're meant to do, because it, it'll make them look good, while the other is given out of organic growth in their own heart? What she did isn't an indication that she's attached to the real vine. At our last uh, church lunch, an average giving figure of the church members was mentioned. And I could hear my heart saying and comparing me to everybody else. Am I complying with the norm? That is the difference between mechanical growth 
and real growth, but I think they often look exactly the same externally. The real measure of growth is our character. Who you are when no one is looking. Who we are privately. How joyful are we really? How pure really? How content with all that we have are we really? How patient internally? It's easy to pretend to be patient. How loving am I? How honest am I? Has anyone here ever been uh, mistakenly overpaid? I have twice. Did I give the money back? I didn't. And thinking about this raises this undercurrent of cynicism in my own heart. Um, perhaps you have it as well. Do you ever resign yourself to failure? I'm never going to change. As time passes, we only get more addicted, more anxious, more cynical, more disillusioned. Once you've gone through the school of hard knocks, boy, then you'll know. I'm shy when it comes to sharing the gospel. I'm never going to be bold on that. I'm weak when it comes to controlling my anger. It's uh, just my personality. What I am like, particularly the bad things, is just the sum of all my experiences in my life. It's just who I am and I can't change. There may be things present in our lives today that are hurting us and hurting people around us. And the truth be told, you've secretly given up on yourself. You've given up on any realistic change. That is not at all consistent with this passage. Are we really saying that the life-giving presence and power of Christ, the Lord who spoke everything into being, the Lord who oceans obey, can somehow be overcome? Are we saying that uh, he can be defeated by a certain character flaw in our tiny lives? Are we saying he doesn't have the power to overcome it? Jesus says, verse 5, If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. This passage says that God himself is in your heart, united with you. He will produce fruit in you. But I feel so weak, you say. Of course, without me you can do nothing, verse 5. Ask for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Draw on me and I will give it to you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you, verse 7. Being united with Christ is the basis for all and any, any growth. And this has always been the case. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, the cry of David in Psalm 51. Uh, God speaking to his people in Ezekiel says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh, declares the Lord. If you have that sense which I, I do, that as a Christian, I'm, I'm a bit like a bud that hasn't blossomed, full of potential, uh, not much actual. This passage speaks to that concern and promises real growth. I am the true vine, says Jesus. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. The second thing for us to consider is that we are made for growth. What are we made for? I think I've got it is up there. If you've been coming to church for any length of time, 
You know why Jesus died on the cross, right? It was to save you from your sins. It's a fundamental truth of Christianity. We're saved from the consequences of sin, which is hell. How do we understand hell? It's separation from God, from all of his love and goodness and grace. When we say we don't want anything to do with him or his kingdom, eventually that wish is granted and he takes himself away from us. And as he is the source of all good things, this is bad news. And the gospel, which means good news, is that if we trust him and love him, we're saved from that reality. But there is more than that. I think we readily know what we're saved from, but do we know what we're saved for? If hell is separation from God, what is the opposite to that? What is the opposite to separation? Connection, attachment, togetherness and union. It's the great purpose of the Christian to be united to Christ, to be partakers in the divine nature. I think that's an astonishing thing. As I said at the start, I find it hard to get a grip of. The perfect creator, infinitely powerful, the, the Trinity, the most breathtaking example of a good relationship. That God wants us to somehow be a part of it. He wants us to be partakers. And he's made us for that purpose. He's made mankind for that relationship. If we trust in Jesus, that moment we are completely saved and justified before him, free of the consequences of sin. When God looks at us, we are hidden in Jesus. But he's not uh, to only save us from death, but to save us for union. Don't we often say, uh, when we make mistakes, I'm only human? As if mistakes is what human nature is really all about. But that's only a picture of sin and this disease that we all have. It's not his intent for us. God, he wants to make us more beautiful, more like his son, more fruitful than we can even imagine in our own minds. Verse 8, it is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. What humankind is made for is union with Christ, union with the true vine. And this is why nothing in all the world, all the other vines are never able to satisfy this is why you can still feel loneliness in a relationship. There's this pining in each of us for more. And when our identity is some, in something other than him, um, we need that thing to succeed. If we succeed in it, great. And then we have to move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And if our endeavours for happiness and for joy are unsuccessful, we suffer brokenness at that failure. The promise of Christ is that our biggest need is satisfied in him alone. And when you think that's what we were originally made for, for that relationship, it makes perfect sense. We were made for him and quite simply, nothing else will do. The consequence of sin is a broken relationship and the person of Christ is its restoration. Saved from separation, for union. I am the true vine. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. 
were made for him. Before we get to the last point, I just wanted to address the difference between union and communion. I have a brother, nothing can change that, it's irreversible, historic. We're united as siblings, and from the moment he was born, that was a fact. How I feel towards him over time has changed. As we've spent time together, we've grown closer. But if I was to move away, for example, I'd see less and less of him. And some of the closest, closeness would probably go. That's communion. This would have no effect on the fact that we are brothers. From the day he was born, he was as much my brother then as he is today. And if you are a Christian, Christ's work to unite you is done. It's a done deal. And that is what can be a motivation for communion, for resting in him. Verse 3, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me. He's united us to him. And the day you become a Christian, you are as loved then as you could ever be. The only thing that can change is our appreciation of that love, our knowledge and understanding of it. So we've looked at what real growth is versus mechanical growth. Uh, we've looked at what we're really made for as human beings. And uh, lastly, let's move on to the practical. How? How can we grow? There's two things mentioned in this passage that are a help to us as we approach that question. First, verse 7. If my words remain in you. I thought of Psalm 1 when I read that. Blessed is the one that meditates on the law of the Lord. Having his words remain in us, what does that even mean? It means meditating on them, churning over the truths in your heart and mind and letting it preach to you daily, this reflection and meditation and memorisation, applying his words to your everyday life. In um, Luke chapter 2, verse 14, it's perhaps my favourite verse. It says, On earth, peace to men on whom his favour rests. I reflect on that uh, verse and think, for some reason, God's favour rests on me. When I feel unworthy or useless, uh, when I'm disappointed with how things turn out, when after years of preparation, I get permanently rejected from a job that I always wanted to do. His words preach to me and comfort me. Dan, peace to you. The Lord's favour rests on you. I turn that, that truth over and think about it. And how different could this coming week be for, for us if every day, as often as we could, we reflected on verse 16 in, in the very passage. You did not choose me, but I chose you. It helps us deal with feeling guilty and unworthy. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. If we got that verse right into our hearts, morning, noon and night, if we let the word remain in us, don't you agree that would help us grow? Grow in our appreciation, grow in our boldness. If someone you fancied asked you out, you'd walk down the street with a skip in your step. And here we have the Lord of all creation who, who needs nothing. The only one who can give full joy in its completion saying, 
I've made everything and I've chosen you. It's, our experience of life would be different if that was at the forefront of our minds. When I fail, when I think I'm, I'm so sinful, how can I come to you, God, with this guilt? How can I come to you given the state of my life and my behaviour? He says, I chose you, that's how. Lord God, I'm so worried about how this situation is going to turn out. What do Jesus' words say? Not even a sparrow is forgotten by God. Are you not worth more to me than they? Remain in my words. Second, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Remain in my love is the other thing. Remain in my words, remain in my love. We still, uh, say, I say we, I just know this from my own life. Persist, I still persist in trying to be my own saviour. To earn salvation in some way and forget that he's already done all of that in his love. I seek the approval of others. And I forget that I already have the approval and the love of the only one that matters. The only person that lasts. The only approval that counts. We spend time and money on trivial things because we think that they will give us joy. And we forget that in his love he gave us himself. And what comes along that is, with that is complete joy. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. As the Father has loved me, as in the Trinity, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. I do wonder um, how many problems that we have um, become too much to deal with because we forget about his love. There is a time in my past when I was suffering pretty badly um, and I'd not known grief like it. My heart was weary and sad and I wasn't able to shake it. I plodded, a lot, uh, plodded on with work, uh, did everything I could to take my mind off it, but inside I was full of sorrow. Months went by and it got no easier. And eventually I was totally exhausted and worn out from it. And I didn't know what to do. Um, I remember because I, I still lived at home and I, with my parents, I went to uh, my bedroom and I prayed. I only said two words and perhaps these are the most genuine words I've ever spoken to God. I said, help me. And this is what happened. I gained an immediate peace from that day onwards that made dealing with that grief easier. I know it could only have come from him, from God, this peace I suddenly had. As I reflect on that experience now, I see that in my heart, I remembered that God loves me and I cried out to him and I asked him for help. On that day, I chose to remain in his love. I remembered his love for me and drew on him the true vine. It's a memorable experience. And it's the type of story that if I heard it from another person, There'd be a part of me that would say, nah, something like that would never happen to me. I'm too kind of level-headed and all that kind of thing. If you're not a Christian here today, 
or even if you are a Christian, let me close with this encouragement from the lips of God. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rebel against God. The first thing that God says after this is a window into his heart for us. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? Perhaps the biggest question the Bible asks us, where are you? Union with him and the complete joy that it offers is what we have been created for. It's what we're meant for. It is the meaning of life. Nothing else will satisfy in the end. The need for him is in all of us. And he says, where are you? In him, in his love, in his words, or outside? I am the true vine. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Shall we pray?